Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Tuesday the 12th of February 2013. Bothell, Washington State, the United States. A concerned co-worker contacted the local police after a 37-year-old woman failed to show up for work for two days in a row. And when the authorities conducted a welfare check, they were met with a scene that made their deepest and darkest nightmares seem tame in comparison. The investigators found themselves grappling with a series of questions, each more unsettling than the last. The nature of the event, its inexplicable motive, and ultimately, who engineered Susan Smith's murder? People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. In the year 2009, Susan Smith and Alan Smith were in love, married, and had bought and moved into a house together in the 200 block of 240th Street, Southwest, Bothell. Their life together seemed to have been going well, with Alan finding work at the local Boeing plant as they raised their two young children. Though the happy life that their friends and family saw from the outside had been riddled with issues consuming their relationship behind closed doors. So much so that on Friday the 18th of November 2011, the couple filed for divorce. And on that same day, Alan moved out of the Smith house and into an apartment in Bothell. The separated couple then spent months trying to both reach a share agreement about the kids. Though Alan and Susan were unable to find resolve on all the parenting issues. You see, Alan wanted to have a 50-50 share plan, but Susan felt that such a plan would have been far too disruptive for their two young kids. And when it became clear that they would be unable to reach an agreement, Alan hired an attorney and filed for a motion for temporary order. On Friday the 3rd of August 2012, a hearing took place regarding the custody, which included a temporary parenting plan that had been submitted by Susan, which is essentially an agreement that has information about where your child will live, and how you and the other parent or parents will care for your child or children, 
during the divorce proceedings with the temporary parenting plan lasting until the divorce is finalized and the permanent parenting plan is in place. One of the issues that was raised during this hearing had been that Alan had moved to the Ravina neighborhood of Seattle and the commissioner felt that the commute to Bothell for the young children simply didn't make a lot of sense. Ultimately though, the commissioner of this hearing largely adopted the plan submitted by Susan, which obviously had been in Susan's favour. After the hearing, Susan and Alan had what was described as a disagreement about who would be spending time with their children over the summer, with Alan growing increasingly angry. Susan's divorce attorney, a man called John Eli, took note of this disagreement, especially when Alan became fixed on Susan with what he described as an, quote, incredibly angry stare that lasted about five or so seconds. This stare had been something that, like John Eli, had never seen in his some 15 years of practice, and it had been concerning enough to John Eli that he actually asked Susan about it afterwards and mentioned it to his staff. A couple of weeks after this hearing, Alan effectively fired his attorney, and hired a new one on the 21st of September 2012. Also in September of 2012, Alan actually began dating a different woman by the name of Rachel Amrine. Alan hadn't been shy of making his thoughts and opinions known about the divorce and about Susan to his new girlfriend Rachel, with Alan asking during one angry rant to Rachel, quote, how could he make someone disappear without anyone knowing? Several days after that angry rant, in an angry phone call, Alan told Rachel that he, quote, just wanted her to be done with, presumably referring to the mother of his children, Susan. In another discussion between Alan and Rachel, Rachel mentioned that one of her friends who had been in the military had once told her how you could beat someone with a phone book and not leave any bruising, to which Alan replied, quote, you could do that with a rubber mallet too. Alan would often rant and rant about Susan to Rachel, getting heated about the amount of child support he was paying and his fear that she would attempt to move the, their two children to Germany, which was where Susan was from. On one notable occasion, Alan told Rachel that he would like to just get rid of Susan Smith and asked her if she knew of any way of making that happen without anyone knowing. And Rachel responded in what she would later claim to have been a joking manner and also later claim that she knew she shouldn't have done this and shouldn't have said this to him, but, but she said that they could use potassium chloride or a rubber mallet to kill someone. When Alan once again mentioned his desire for Susan to disappear, Rachel began to grow very concerned that this wasn't a dark joke anymore, and she began to wonder whether or not Alan was actually serious about it. On Sunday the 27th of October 2012, financial records showed that Alan had visited a Home Depot store and purchased a rubber mallet, two packs of CleanGuard chemical splash-resistant coveralls and disposable shoe covers. The nature of this purchase, especially following his conversations with Rachel, became a major cause of concern for her. On the 7th of November 2012, Alan fired the second attorney that he'd hired for the divorce proceedings and hired a third attorney. And at some point in November of 2012, Rachel helped Alan move from an apartment that he was living in in Seattle to an apartment in Bothell, which was the same place where Susan lived. We do know that on Saturday the 24th of November 2012, Alan purchased a bicycle for $616 from Greg's Green Lake in Seattle. And at some point before the end of that November month, Alan and Rachel separated. Alan Smith filed paperwork relating to his divorce that claims he now believes Susan Smith had been sexually assaulting their two children. Susan's attorney, John Eli, found this new claim to have been very odd 
As Alan had failed to mention any of these concerns about Susan's parenting previously, these filings had been as part of a motion to reconsider a failure by the commissioner to order a GAL, or guardian ad litem, appointed to the case. In some divorce and child custody cases in Washington state, a specially trained guardian ad litem, or GAL, is assigned to the case by the court to investigate and determine what the best interests of the child or children is. GALs do not act as lawyers, therapists, or parties in the case, and therefore do not provide legal advice, counselling, or diagnosis. As soon as Susan's attorney, John Eli, heard of the nature of this filing, he was absolutely outraged. On the 3rd of December 2012, a commissioner heard Allen's motion to appoint a GAL and found no evidence that it was warranted, and actually awarded Susan $500 in attorney fees as a result of having to defend the motion. But Alan wasn't done. He filed a motion for reconsideration, which is basically a request for it to be looked at again to the commissioner on the 13th of December 2012. Though this time, Alan provided a declaration in which he claimed he had been to a psychiatrist and reported his own observations and concerns. He claims that as a result of his discussions, the psychiatrist had raised concerns that Susan may have been sexually abusing their six-year-old daughter. Alan stated, Susan is very much in need of psychiatric evaluation and the children need to be protected. Susan's attorney, John Eli, believed at the time that Alan was engaging in double hearsay with no real evidence. And to John Eli, this showed how outrageous Alan had become in trying to convince the court. He felt that Alan had been willing to do anything to try and get the court to listen to him. And due to the holiday season quickly approaching, Susan would have to live with these allegations until after the new year came around, before seeing if the courts would believe her or her soon-to-be ex-husband, which likely would have caused her a lot of stress. The courts finally addressed the motion on Thursday the 10th of January 2013, with the commissioner denying the motion. Following this hearing for this motion, Susan actually sent an email to her attorney John Eli in which she stated that Alan had called her with a proposal to, quote, give his children their family back, and that essentially he wanted to move back in. Now, to Johnny Eli, this indicated that Alan had been making up stories about her in an effort to win in court. Johnny Eli asked why a person who truly believed that his wife had been sexually abusing their daughter would turn around in a couple of weeks and try to reconcile with his wife. The following day, on Friday the 11th of January 2013, Allen filed a motion of revision of the commissioner's ruling on the GAL, which essentially meant he appealed the ruling against his allegations. Allen also proceeded to file papers that indicated that he was scared that Susan might move the children to a native country of Germany, which would prevent him from seeing his kids. On Friday the 25th of January 2013, a hearing was held in regards to Allen's motion of revision in front of a judge called Judge Fair. And Judge Fair ultimately found there to have been no merit to Alan Smith in his declaration or in his accusations, and once again ruled in Susan's favor. According to Susan's attorney, John Eli, after this hearing took place, Susan had been waiting in the hall outside the courtroom when she was approached by Alan, who called her a, quote, monster. A business trip had been scheduled by Boeing for Alan to travel to Ireland with two of his co-workers, Matthew Pierce and Colin Warner, departing on Monday the 4th of February 2013. On this trip, according to Alan's co-worker Matthew, Alan talked almost exclusively about his divorce. Alan ranted and raved that the court hearings were not going in his favour and detailed his anger about it, blaming the court system as one that had been rigged to favour women and that it was all a conspiracy to take all of his money from him. Allen told Matthew that the courts, quote, 
were a fixed system. Allen's co-workers would later estimate that he would change the topic of conversation while on this trip to Ireland to be about his family problems at least 60 to 70% of the time. His other co-worker, Colin, would later describe a conversation that he had with Allen on the island trip in which Allen commented, quote, I want her to know the pain I feel talking about Susan. Colin would also later explain how Alan told him that Susan had been mentally abusive towards him and apparently also used to treat their dog poorly. Matthew Pierce later revealed that he was told by Alan several times that his wife Susan was quote pure evil and called her a quote psychopath. This kind of conversation about Alan's divorce hadn't been unusual at all for Alan as according to Matthew in the two or three years that he had known Alan the majority of their conversations had centered around Alan's divorce and his wife. The business trip to Ireland wrapped up on Wednesday the 6th of February 2013 with Alan returning home to Washington on Saturday the 9th arriving at the airport at midday. After departing the airport Alan drove over to the Smith house which was where Susan lived to pick up the children as it had been his turn to have custody arriving at the house at about 2 p.m susan had actually been hosting a fashion party that afternoon which is a german carnival slash celebration described as being the german version of mardi gras and a number of children from the local neighborhood had been there at the smith house as part of this party alan stuck around at this party seemingly to allow his two kids to enjoy the festivities and he actually went inside the smith house he went into the kitchen, two of the bedrooms, the hallway, the bathroom, and the living room. Alan also took his son into the restroom while he was at the house before leaving with both children at about 2.30pm. This party would be, according to Alan Smith, the last time that he saw Susan Smith alive. Alan claims that he'd spent the following day, Sunday the 10th of February 2013, with his children. He had gone to church that Sunday morning at about 9am with the kid, dropping the children off at the church's daycare before carrying out his responsibilities as part of the greeting team for the 9.30am service. The church service... We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So it lasted for about an hour and a half before Alan went with a group of his fellow churchgoers to donate blood. However, he was unsuccessful in his blood donation due to his blood clotting. After he donated or attempted to donate blood, he went out with the group for lunch at The Rock in Linwood. Financial records did indicate that Alan had visited Canyon Park QFC, which is a supermarket, that day. While it is not corroborated by official sources, it seems reasonable to infer that he likely needed to grab some groceries and supplies for himself and his kids after spending the week in Ireland on business. That Sunday evening, Alan watched movies at his apartment with his kids, and then they had all slept there at his apartment. Susan, that day, used her time away from her kids to catch up with some of her friends. That Sunday, she spoke with a friend from Germany over the phone before heading to choir practice, after which Susan met up with her friend Annie to go see Music Man in Seattle. Susan and Annie had met up at the theatre, the Fifth Avenue Theatre, and settled into their seats ready for the show to start at 7pm. After the show, Susan dropped Annie back off at her home and then returned to the Smith house sometime before 10.30pm. It had been around this same time that one of Susan's neighbours, a Mr Buckley or Mark Buckley, returned back home with his daughter and saw Susan standing outside the front of the Smith house. Susan saw Mark Buckley and headed over to him. The conversation had been quick. 
after which Susan returned back to her home. Though Susan didn't go straight to bed when she got back home. Instead, she turned on her computer and accessed the internet, logging into her online banking accounts before going to Netflix to watch a show or a movie. By 11.35pm, Susan had still been watching Netflix. That had been the last known movement of Susan Smith. On Monday the 11th of February 2013, Susan Smith failed to show up for work and failed to answer phone calls from work. We were trying to figure out if she had been running late or if she had any other reason for not showing up. Alan Smith dropped off the two kids at the daycare that morning and picked them up after he had finished his shift at the Boeing plant. According to Alan, he and the children spent that night at Alan's apartment. The following day, on Tuesday the 12th of February 2013, Susan failed to show up for work for the second day in a row. Efforts were made by her co-workers and her employer to get a hold of Susan, but to no avail. This failure to show up for work and failure to answer phone calls was completely out of character and described as being highly unusual for Susan Smith. And so Susan's co-workers contacted the Bothell Police Department and informed them that she had not shown up for work and that they were concerned for her well-being. The police subsequently carried out a welfare check on Susan Smith. Officers arrived at Susan Smith's home for the welfare check at approximately 11.30am, though it must be noted that earlier reports detail them arriving an hour earlier at about 10.30am, but we shall be using the timings of the later reports. And when they arrived, they knocked on the front door to the Smith house, but received no response from inside. The officers then decided to walk around the home and peer in through the windows to see whether they could see any indication that anybody had been home. And it was while they were looking in through the window of Susan's bedroom that they saw significant amounts of blood on the floor and on the wall. The officers then returned to the front of the house and tried the front door, which had been unlocked and entered the Smith house. As the officers started moving through the house, they noticed suspected bloody footprints in the kitchen and a hallway which ran the length of the left half of the residence. They noticed that the amount of suspected blood increased substantially as the hallway stretched into the threshold of the bedroom, which had been the same bedroom that they had peered in through the window from outside. Inside the bathroom of the family home, they discovered that Susan Smith, a 37-year-old mother of two, had been murdered in what they described have been a particularly brutal fashion in the bathtub of her home. The Washington State Patrol Crime Scene Response Team, or CRST, was contacted to assist in processing the crime scene, though they wouldn't arrive until later that evening. An axe was located in the corner of the dining room area of the house that was taken into evidence as a suspected weapon but they didn't really think it was the weapon but they took it into evidence anyway based on the blood spatter evidence it had become apparent that susan had initially been attacked while she had been in her bed the attacks then moved to the floor between the bed and the wall which had extensive blood pooling smearing and splattering it was apparent that susan had been rendered defenseless while on the floor with bloody drag marks leading from the floor down the hall and into the bathroom inside the bathroom susan smith's body lay face down in the bathtub, which had been full of water. Susan had been clothed only in a grey t-shirt, and her body temperature had been consistent with her having been in the tub for multiple days. Horrifically, due to the injuries that Susan had sustained to her face, the police had been initially unable to positively identify her. During the processing of the home, the police discovered a number of footprints left in blood in various locations in the house. Some of these bloody footprints appear to have been of a bare foot, showing through a blood-soaked sock. Some of them appear to have been that of a shoed foot, a shoe which had a distinct pattern on the sole, and some of them appear to have been that of a shoe wearing some kind of covering that left a distinct pattern 
impressions in the blood. On the bathtub itself, the police discovered several bloody transfer impressions with a very distinct pattern. It appeared that these bloody transfer impressions did not have any ridge detail, which indicated that Susan's killer had been wearing gloves at the time. It also appeared that at least some preliminary efforts at cleaning up the crime scene had been attempted. Notably, the police found no signs of forced entry and no murder weapons at the crime scene besides the axe, but again, they didn't really think that was a murder weapon, but it took it to be analysed anyway. There'd been no evidence that the Smith home had been ransacked or searched, with various items such as laptops, smartphones and TVs that would commonly be stolen in a burglary being left untouched. This led the investigators to conclude that Susan Smith had been targeted. A full-scale homicide investigation was launched, with Detective Stone and Detective Shissus quickly arriving on the scene. The detectives quickly learned from speaking with the neighbours of Susan that she had an estranged husband called Alan Smith and that Alan worked at the Boeing plant in Everett, and that Susan currently lived in the house with her two small children. The authorities established that Alan Smith had lived about 10 minutes away from Susan's home via car, and that they shared two small children who had been in Alan's care over the weekend, and both the children had been dropped off at the daycare that morning. Both of the children were contacted, and they were determined to have been safe. Detective Shissus spoke with two neighbours to Susan's house, Mark Buckley and Oksana Gutnikov, who had both attended the children's party at Susan's house the Saturday prior. They explained that the only other adults at the party had been Susan and Alan Smith, though Alan didn't actually attend the party and only showed up at the end to pick up their children. Both Oksana Gutnikov and Mark Buckley stated that they never saw Alan leave the living room of Susan's house that day, though they both had left the party while Alan had still been inside. And so, Detective Stone and Detective Shisus decided to pay Alan a visit. At approximately 2pm, Detective Stone, Detective Shisus, and uniformed officer Caban left Bothell for the Boeing plant. En route, Detective Stone contacted Boeing security officer Brian Ferguson, and requested a meeting with Alan Smith. He detailed the purpose of the visit to both inform Alan Smith that his wife appeared to have been murdered, that his children were safe, and to see if Alan appeared to have any injuries that may have been associated with the murder, and to find out Alan's whereabouts at relevant times to the crime. The two detectives and the uniformed officer arrived at the Boeing plant at about 2.45pm. Upon their arrival, they were escorted into one of Boeing's conference rooms by security, and shortly thereafter, Alan Smith was also escorted into the conference room. Detective Stone introduced him himself and Detective Shissus to Alan Smith and told him that they would like to talk with him. Now strangely, Alan failed to ask the detectives what exactly the purpose of their visit had been about. It's important to note that the uniformed officer was seated in the far corner of the conference room and had no interaction with Alan directly, while Alan sat at the head of the conference table with the two detectives who had been dressed in plain clothes. The detectives informed Alan that they were investigating a serious crime, but importantly, his children were safe, before telling Alan that they had located a dead body at the Smith house. Alan Smith then proceeded to give the police his first account of his activities over the past several days, which included when he claimed to have last seen Susan and the state of the pending divorce. After Alan disclosed this account, Detective Stone attempted to press Alan further and mentioned that divorce and child custody hearings could be very emotional, asking Alan whether he had any reason to harm Susan Smith. Alan did not answer the detective, so Detective Stone asked Alan the question again, to which Alan said, quote, I think I may need to talk to an attorney. It was at that point that Detective Stone informed Alan that he was not under arrest, and Alan indicated that he understood what the detective was saying. Now, it is also important to note that Alan did not ask these detectives as to whose body had been found, and according to the two detectives, it seemed as if Alan's reaction had been rehearsed. 
They also made note of the fact that Alan didn't ask what the crime was, nor did he ask where his children were, and that he struggled with his timeline of events for the Sunday evening into the Monday morning. It was at this point that the detectives took note of Alan's obviously swollen left hand and a cut that he had sustained to his left thumb. Alan explained that his three-year-old son had struck his hand with a hatchet whilst cutting firewood, and that his son had hit him without warning. To the detectives, the injury looked like the result of a contusion from blunt force trauma. Alan then explained that the reason he had a band-aid over his left thumb had been due to the fact that he had accidentally cut himself while cutting an apple earlier that morning at home. Further abrasions on the knuckles of his right hand that had been almost healed were noted by the investigators, with Alan explaining that he always seemed to cut himself. The detectives asked Alan whether they could take photographs of his hands, to which he agreed, and it was immediately obvious, based on comparing both hands, that Alan's left hand had been swollen. Detective Stone then excused himself and stepped away from the conference room to call the assigned prosecutor, and they decided that Alan was not going to be detained at that time and that he was free to go. The interview in the conference room came to an end at approximately 4.30pm, with Alan agreeing to let the detectives drive him back to his building where his car had been parked. Alan sat in the back of the police vehicle as they drove to his building with no further questioning taking place. When they arrived at his building, Alan went inside and retrieved his laptop and backpack. And as he was doing so, the detectives placed another call to the assigned prosecutor and it was subsequently determined that Alan and Susan's children would be placed with Child Protective Services, or CPS, until Alan had been cleared in the homicide investigation. When Alan left his office building, the detectives informed him that the children were going into CPS until further notice, to which Alan responded with, quote, I guess I'll have to live with that. Alan didn't ask how his children were, or where they were, or even how to contact them. It wasn't until the detectives told Alan the steps to take to reach CPS, they asked about the welfare of his two young children, with detectives telling Alan that the CPS paperwork could be retrieved from the Bothell Police Department. The detectives handed Alan directions to the police department so he could pick up paperwork, and this ended the first initial police contact with Alan Smith. At approximately 5pm, Detective Stone contacted the Bothell Police Department to let them know that Alan Smith would be en route to them to get the CPS paperwork. Shortly before Alan arrived at the police department, he actually left a message on Detective Stone's voicemail in which he asked whether the police wanted to look around his apartment or take a DNA sample. The detective wouldn't hear this message until two days later on the 14th of February when he checked his voicemail, but as you'll soon find out, it really didn't matter that he missed it. At 6pm, Alan Smith arrived at the police department and entered the front lobby. A member of staff and Detective Thompson met with Alan Smith and together they went over the CPS paperwork. It was during this conversation that Alan told them that his car had been parked outside and that the police could search it and his apartment if they wanted to. Detective Thompson explained that there was forms Alan would have to sign if that's what he wanted, and Alan indicated that he would be fine with that. Detective Stone was then contacted at 6.35pm and informed of Alan's consent for a search. Detective Stone and Detective Shisus arriving back at the Bothell Police Department at 6.55pm to meet with Alan to get through the paperwork. Alan wrote this brief statement in which he indicated that he was initiating contact with detectives and that he did not need the presence of his lawyer while the police inspected his car and his apartment. Detective Stone then went over the Ferrier consent form with Alan, which he signed, and the search of Alan Smith's car began at approximately 7pm. During the search, the police located a plastic bag from Home Depot that contained two further unopened bags of CleanGuard chemical splash-resistant coveralls. They also located a roll of tape, an unopened box of Playtex brand latex gloves, 
a new five-gallon gas container, and a portable Garmin GPS on the front dash. A brief conversation ensued in which Alan Smith stated that he'd been planning on painting a, quote, accent wall in his apartment to justify the coveralls and the roll of tape. At the conclusion of the search of his car, Alan was asked by the detectives if he would still like to consent to the search of his apartment, to which he said yes, he did, and then Alan Smith drove himself to his apartment, followed closely by Detective Stone and Detective Shesus, the trio arriving at the apartment at approximately 7.30pm. A number of detectives also arrived at Alan's apartment shortly thereafter to assist in the search, and Alan Smith read and signed a consent to search form at 7.26pm. The search was conducted while Alan sat at the dining room table. In the spare bedroom, which was just off the living room, Detective Shusas noticed about 10 separate neat stacks of paper placed on the floor. The stacks were very orderly, and the room itself had been void of furniture and furnishings. Detective Shusas also noticed that a fair amount of the paper appeared to be related to the divorce proceedings and child custody issues. During the course of the search of his apartment, Alan Smith apparently spoke with two of the detectives and discussed a number of topics, but it's unclear what exactly they spoke about. At about 8.40pm, Alan Smith mentioned that he was willing to volunteer a buccal swab for DNA purposes, which he did without being prompted by the police. The investigators accepted his offer and subsequently obtained two separate DNA samples of Alan Smith's saliva. Alan Smith then sat down with Detective Shesus and Detective Stone in his apartment and gave a taped statement at 8.42pm. In this taped statement, Alan was asked to describe where he and Susan first met, to which he described that they had first met in 1999 when he'd been attending the University of Colorado Boulder. According to Alan, Susan had been a foreign exchange student from Germany as he had been getting his undergraduate, and after they had met, Alan had learned German. He went on to explain that he had wanted to go experience a little bit of Germany, which he did. Firstly, he got a job in Austria, but had been unable to afford his bills, so ended up going to Germany for a while, and worked there. After which, Alan and Susan went on what Alan described as a world tour and ultimately ended up in the United States in the Bothell area in 2009. When Alan was asked about his relationship with Susan, Alan said that it was complicated and that they had communication troubles, detailing that there had been fights in front of the kids that ultimately led to separation. Alan also revealed to the investigators that he and Susan had tried couples counselling, though it hadn't helped and ultimately Alan ended up moving out to the family home. He confirmed that he had moved out of the Smith house in November of 2011 and into an apartment in the North Creek area of Bothell. Alan explained that his relationship with Susan at that point had been collegial and rather formal. The detectives then inquired as to the state of the divorce proceedings, which Alan detailed that there had been a parenting plan in place and that they were nearing finalising the divorce, though they hadn't set up a date for mediation as of that point. Detective Stone asked Alan when the last time was that he spoke to Susan. And Alan stated that he spoke to her on the Saturday of the fashion party at the house and that that conversation had been the last time. Alan told the detectives that he had been picking up the children and that Susan had been having a party with some of her friends as part of the fashion celebrations. He described how the children had costumes on and that there had been a big construction project in the living room. Alan explained that he had been at the party for about half an hour and had been keeping an eye on the kids who had been running back and forth throughout the house into the bedrooms and hallways. He made sure to state to the police that he had been play wrestling with his son in the hallway and in the living room and that his hair might be found in the home because of this wrestling with his son who had pulled on his hair. An interesting thing to say. When the party came to an end at 2.30pm, Alan described that Susan almost whisked him and the children out of the front door so that she could start cleaning. But before doing that, Susan, according to Alan, asked him to take a jacket and some other clothing across the street to Mark Buckley, 
as his daughter had left a few things at the house. Besides the children at the party, the only other adults present that Alan recalled had been Mark Buckley and another neighbour by the name of Oksana. Detective Stone then inquired as to when Alan and Susan had moved into the house, which Alan responded by stating that they had moved in shortly after their son was born, settling on December of 2009. Alan was then asked whether Susan had any other male companions that he knew of, perhaps anyone who would have been present at the party. He responded by saying that he had suspected that Susan and the neighbour Mark had been dating for a while, but Susan had told him that they hadn't been dating, and that Susan hadn't introduced Alan to any of her boyfriends, and on the flip side, he hadn't introduced Susan to any of his girlfriends. Detective Stone's tone turned more serious as he asked Alan, do you know anybody who would want to harm her? Alan said that he didn't know. The detectives posed a theoretical, asking if he had been them, where would he start to look? Alan hesitated for a moment before stating that on that Sunday, Susan would have been at church, so he would expect someone with the choir. He told the investigators that Susan had attended the same church that they had both attended when they had still been together, but that he didn't attend it anymore. It was at this point that Alan reiterated that Mark and Oksana were a good place to start. The interview then pivoted back to Alan's relationship to Susan, with Detective Stone asking whether Alan had been paying child support. Alan confirmed that he did, estimating that he paid roughly 1100 monthly. The detectives asked for more details about the child support payments, which saw Alan end up upping the estimate of how much he paid close to 2000 a month. When Alan was asked whether Susan had been working and what she worked as, his answer had been a bit all over the place, though he eventually clarified that Susan had been doing translating work. Now, it must be noted that during the police search of Alan's apartments, they located a hatchet, which the detectives took a strong interest in. Detective Stone asked Alan about the hatchet and asked him whether he had sustained any injuries of any kind. Alan responded by saying that he had swelling in his left hand, where his son had hit him across the meat of his hand and up into the knuckle of the middle finger with the hatchet. Detective Shisus asked if they could recreate the incident, to which Alan agreed to do so. He was handed a piece of firewood and asked to hold it exactly how he had done at the time. Alan held the firewood on the table with his hand palming the top portion of the wood. He then indicated that his three-year-old had hit him on the back of his hand with the hatchet turned backwards. The reverse of the hatchet, that portion, is similar to that of a hammer. Detective Shisus raised the hatchet and gently brought it down, hammer side on the back of his hand, and Alan agreed that that is how it had happened. Though to the detectives, the swelling on the back of Alan's hand did not appear to be consistent with that kind of injury. There was no distinct marking consistent with the circular hammer portion of the hatchet. And notably, the hatchet appeared to have been too heavy a tool for a three-year-old to be able to hold, yet alone use. The detectives took note of this observation before Detective Shisus revisited the line of questioning concerning whether Susan had been dating anybody. He asked Alan whether Susan would have told him if she'd been dating, to which Alan said that she wouldn't have, as Alan didn't feel that it's appropriate for him to introduce his girlfriends to her and that he wouldn't expect her to. Though Alan did go back on himself and explain that he had introduced one previous girlfriend before, but that it had been awkward. The investigators then went through Alan's dating history with him, with Alan revealing that he'd dated three women since the separation, though none for very long. Now, it's interesting to note that Alan failed to mention his relationship with Rachel Amrine to the investigators at this point. Detective Stone then asked a pivotal question. How do you feel if something happened to Susan? Let's take a look at Alan's response. Oh, um, as if something happened to me, um, I, uh, angry and despondent, hurt, hurt, pause, confused, really, uh, kind of scared, really scared. I mean, if something happened to her, something could happen to me, and what's going to happen to my kids? That's really just what I, I really am scared for my kids right now. Um, just, oh, just like, 
terror imagining something happening to Susan. This is just my own opinion, but I find it very interesting and curious that Alan focuses his response on his own well-being and overall lacks any concern for his ex-wife. Detective Stone then asked Alan what he thought had happened to Susan. Alan responded by stating that they hadn't told him anything yet, though he was aware that there was a lot of interest in the hatchet, which to him suggested a lot of violence. Detective Shusas quickly clarified that their interest in the hatchet had been due to the injury that Alan had sustained, which seemingly took Alan by surprise. Detective Stone then asked Alan who he thought was in Susan's home and reiterated that they had told him that they believed there to have been a dead body, asking Alan who he thought it was. This is what Alan responded with. I, I feel that, I feel that it's Susan. When asked why he thought that, he said, it just, if, I mean, because she hasn't been to work, I haven't heard from her, and I mean, I, I don't see her having a lot of people overnight, um, and I could be, I could be wrong, but if there's, if there was one person staying overnight, then where's Susan? And I sent her an email yesterday and she didn't respond. I mean, I wasn't really requesting a response, but, um, I don't know. I, I'm tempted to text her, but I don't know if that's... The interview then changed its focus once more to the vehicles that Alan owned, with Alan confirming that he drove a dark blue year 2000 Mercedes ML320, which is like an SUV. Alan also revealed that he had a Honda Magna 2002 motorcycle that he had bought used. It was at this point in the interview that Alan explained that he had a bicycle that had been stolen when he had lived at his other apartment in Ravina. He stated that he hadn't reported it stolen and that it had been a Jamis Zenith street bike. The detectives were unable to locate the bicycle described by Alan in any of their searches of Alan's apartment, Susan's house, or nearby, though they did later learn from Alan's co-workers that he had been an avid cyclist. The interview at Alan's apartment concluded at 9.35pm, after which the police bade Alan goodnight and left. Now weirdly, and we'll come back to this later on, but at 10.23pm, Alan actually texted Susan's phone saying just, quote, Hi Susie. That text message, as we'll touch on later, was very, very odd. As this interview at the apartment search had been taking place, the Washington State Patrol Crime Scene Response Team, or CSRT, had arrived at the Smith House, arriving at about 8pm to begin processing the crime scene, which took them several days, but we're going to go through their findings more or less all their findings right now. The CSRT processed the blood stains, footwear impressions, and footprint impressions that had been found left throughout the house. There'd been several very clear footprint and footwear impressions left in the blood matrix in several locations in the house. Starting from the front door, the CSRT identified a single droplet of blood at the front entryway, just inside the door. They determined that it could have been possible that it had come from wet blood dripping off blood-soaked items such as clothing or weapons being removed from the scene by the suspect, but that it was also equally possible it could have come from blood from a fresh wound that the suspect had sustained. It was a notable finding due to the fact that it had been found in an area where there had been no other bloodstains present and that it had been a symmetrical bloodstain, which meant its width was equal to its length, indicating that it was deposited from directly above the floor. This supported the hypothesis that the blood could have come from the suspect as they were leaving the crime scene, and the CSRT noted that just that one bit of evidence could contain the DNA profile of the suspect in the case emphasizing the importance that it is analyzed. Blood smearing was identified on the inside and outside of the doorknob of the front door with samples being collected for analysis. The CSRT identified several foot impressions in the home, including in the hallway, kitchen, dining room, and living room, 
that tested positive for the presence of blood. Those foot impressions were also consistent in shape and size, likely being from just one person. A multitude of photographs were taken of these bloody footprints. It was also concluded by the CSRT that the foot impressions had been from a soft sole shoe or some type of soft material such as a sock or shoe cover with a waffle type pattern. Blood splatter, blood cast off, and other types of blood evidence were documented, both as they had been found initially, and then as different pieces of furniture were removed to fully reveal the blood evidence. In the bathroom, the CSRT processed the scene in which the body was found in a bathtub full of water. The sides of the bathtub and the floor of the bathroom did not have any water or residue staining, which indicated that the tub hadn't been full of water prior to the body being placed in it. They also identified and collected a number of hairs from the victim's right hand and other parts of her body. CSRT located blood transfer staining from some material that had been left on the front edge of the bathtub, which they determined to have been from a material with a small woven pattern of equally squared shapes, consistent with an article of clothing or soft fabric. The CSRT further took a large number of swabs from various bloody areas of the home, and took a number of physical items into evidence. They did examine the axe that had been found in the living room of Susan's home, and they eliminated it as being involved in the crime, as it did not test positive for blood. The material found near it had been determined to be just small pieces of wood, and the axe had a large amount of dust on it which indicated it hadn't been moved or used for quite some time. Further, the CSRT may note that there had been several bloody finger-type impressions throughout the scene, but none of them were AFIS quality, AFIS being the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, which is used to match fingerprints against known records. Nor did these bloody finger-type impression prints show any ridge detail, which could have been an indication that the suspect or suspects may have been wearing protective gloves as the attack was carried out. Chris Kern, who was an expert in crime scene reconstruction and bloodstain pattern analysis, had led the team that processed the home and created the detailed report on what had happened. And based on the initial evidence and processing of the residents, it was determined that a brutal and lethal assault against the victim began in the back bedroom before the suspect dragged the victim into the bathroom and placed the victim in the bathtub face down. The suspect then filled the bathtub with water and ensured the victim's head had been under the water. Afterwards, the suspect walked about the hallway and kitchen during and after the crime based on the bloody foot impressions before leaving the house via the front door. No indications of the presence of blood in the kitchen sink or on any of the knives in the kitchen had been found and there'd been no presence of blood in the bathroom sink. An experiment was later conducted in which a bathtub was filled with water to the watermark left on the tub as it had been found by the first responders, and it showed the suspects would have had to have waited close to 15 minutes for the bathtub to fill with enough water to submerge the victim. Steve Stone, who was a forensic scientist at Washington State Police, was consulted about the footwear impressions left in the blood, and we will be discussing his findings a bit later on. And Sergeant Shelley Massey from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was also consulted about the bloody footprints as Sergeant Shelley Massey was an expert on foot morphology. Again, we'll explore their findings in just a moment. Now, Dr. Stanley Adams, who had been the assistant medical examiner for Snowmish County, had been the one to respond to the crime scene alongside medical examiner investigator Don Carmen. The body was examined in situ before being removed from the bathtub and examined once more, with the body being confirmed to have been that of an adult with physical features that fit the description of Susan Smith. Though, again, 
Due to the severity of the wounds, Dr. Stanley Adams could not confirm the body as being Susan Smith until they could later compare the dental records. The remains were then removed to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy to be conducted. The autopsy was conducted on Wednesday the 13th of February 2013 by Dr. Stanley Adams, who had been the pathologist. The autopsy revealed that Susan had sustained numerous severe wounds with multiple injuries to her head and face. It also didn't find any evidence that sexual assault had taken place. Wounds that Susan had sustained to her arms were determined to have been defensive wounds. One of the significant findings in the autopsy had been that two different weapons had been used to kill Susan. It was revealed that Susan Smith had water in the lungs and airway consistent with drowning, with the cause of death being determined to have been blunt force and sharp force trauma, the third component of asphyxiation by drowning. The manner of death was ruled a homicide and via dental records it was confirmed that the body was that of Susan Smith. The detectives conducted numerous interviews with neighbours, co-workers, friends and family members of Susan Smith and Alan Smith and learned several notable pieces of information. The witnesses described Alan Smith as being creepy, weird and awkward and that Alan Smith had not been overly interested or involved with his children prior to the separation from Susan. One witness detailed that after the separation of Alan and Susan, Susan had come home one day and discovered Alan inside her home with a new girlfriend preparing a meal. Co-workers of Alan described him discussing his hatred and hostility constantly, to such a degree that a supervisor at his workplace had told Alan that his continued discussion of his divorce had been disrupting the work environment. The witnesses also relayed that Alan had indicated that he would do whatever was necessary to stop Susan moving with the children back to Germany. On Saturday the 16th of February 2013, at approximately 2.45pm, Detective Stone and Detective Shesus went to Alan Smith's apartment to ask him a few more questions. The detectives explained that they understood Alan Smith had been contacted about the positive identification of Susan as the person found murdered in her bathtub, before going on to explain that they were following up with various witnesses who knew Susan. Alan then invited the two detectives inside and expressed how upset he was that CPS had custody of his children. It was noted that Alan never asked about his children and only stated that the police and CPS had taken his kids away from him. Detective Stone tried to explain to Alan that both CPS and the police were just doing their job to make sure the children were safe and not in any danger to which Alan retorted that his attorney said he shouldn't be talking to the detectives. The detectives reminded Alan that it was his choice to talk to them, but they were hoping he could help them out with any information about people that knew Susan. Alan told them that he would answer questions by stating, okay, before sitting down. The three discussed whether Susan had been dating the neighbor Mark again, and discussed again if Alan knew if Susan had been dating anyone before discussing Alan's relationship to Susan once more. Alan's answers had been very direct and non-emotional when discussing Susan and her personal life, though it was at this point that Alan told the two detectives that he had been upset by the other nights and that he believed that it had been the detective's job to traumatise him. A very short conversation then occurred about Susan's work, her nicknames, and then his access to Susan's house. And that final point caused Alan to stand up and tell the detectives to leave. Alan refused for any more photos to be taken of his hands before getting extremely close to Detective Stone. So close that Detective Stone became concerned for his personal safety. The detectives tried to defuse the situation by asking about the children's party, to which Alan briefly responded before telling them to leave once more. Alan told the detectives in this brief response that he had stayed about two or three minutes longer than the other adults at Susan's house, and that Susan had taken him by the hand and into her bedroom to show him new photos of him and the children. 
Alan stated that these photos had been on a shelf in the bedroom, though no photographs of Alan were located on the shelves, walls, or anywhere else throughout the numerous searches of the house. This account that Susan had taken Alan by the hand and taken him to the bedroom was very, very inconsistent with the increasing acrimony of the divorce proceedings and custody issues, especially when it was outlined in the court documents that Alan claims that Susan might be sexually abusing the children and that Alan had called Susan a monster after their last court hearing. As the detectives were leaving, they invited Alan and his attorney to contact them, which was when Alan revealed that he did not actually have a lawyer. That same day, on the 16th of February, the forensic scientists from the Washington State Police Crime Lab processed Alan's SUV, and they found traces of blood on the steering wheel, center console, and the floor mat. Traces of blood were also found on Alan's backpack, the same backpack that Alan had retrieved from his office after the interview at Boeing. On the 18th of February 2013, Bothell police detectives conducted a blood transfer experiment, in which they used animal blood to simulate human blood and samples of the same type of clean guard coverall suit that was found in Alan's vehicle to see whether the blood transfer impressions could be matched. A fiberglass bathtub, similar to the bathtub at the scene, was purchased and set up for the experiments, with animal blood applied to test samples of the clean guard coveralls and pressed against the sample bathtub to simulate the blood transfer. The results of this experiment showed that there were similar characteristics to that of the blood transfer stains found on the bathtub in Susan's house. On the 19th of February 2013, the day after the blood transfer experiment, a professional child interview was conducted with Susan and Alan's six-year-old daughter. During the interview, when asked about her little brother using a hatchet to chop wood, the six-year-old asked, quote, how could a three-year-old even chop wood? The young girl proceeded to explain that her dad, Alan, was the only one that chopped wood, and he did it outside in the hallway. The six-year-old then related in great detail of how her dad, Alan, had cut up apples on the morning of Susan's body being found, and that he had sprinkled cinnamon on them. The detectives noted how she had been very descriptive with how he cut the apples with a knife, took the seeds out, placed the slices on plates, and sprinkled them with cinnamon, before bringing the plates to them at the dining table where they all ate. Importantly, the six-year-old didn't mention anything about Alan cutting his finger or needing a band-aid. On Thursday the 21st of February 2013, a search warrant was signed that authorised the search of Alan Smith's person, apartment, Mercedes and Honda motorcycle. The detectives decided to attempt to speak to Alan prior to the warrant being executed, and so the following day on Friday the 22nd of February at approximately 8.51am, Detective Stone and Detective Shesus knocked on Alan's door who answered and let them in. They told Alan that they wanted to talk to him about the investigation, and so the three of them sat at the dining room table and discussed a number of things, including Alan's activities over the last several days, his concerns regarding his children and CPS, his travel plans, his belief that the police may have planted some blood evidence near his apartment, and what he thought might have happened to Susan. The conversation came to an end when Detective Stone suggested that the person who had committed the murder of Susan must have been feeling intense pain for their actions and that person needed to know they could receive grace and mercy if that person were to turn themselves in and tell their side of the story. Alan simply nodded his head before saying that he didn't have anything else to say. Following this, the search warrant was executed with several electronics being seized, photographs taken of Alan, and another search of his apartment taking place. On Wednesday the 27th of February 2013, a search warrant for Alan's computers, cell phones, work area, GPS unit, and several flash drives was carried out. The police seized three computers, two phones, and four USB flash drives. And from Alan's car, 
they seized his Garmin Nuvi GPS unit. It's also important to note that at some point during this early investigation, the police retrieved CCTV surveillance footage from various traffic cameras and security cameras surrounding the area of the Smith house. With the findings of these warrants in mind, let's take a look at a complete timeline of Allen's actions in the days before, the day of, and the day after the murder of Susan. Let's wind back the clock to the Sunday prior to the murder, the day that Susan went to the theatre with her friend, the 10th of February 2013. The police examined various traffic cameras to look for vehicles belonging to Alan on that evening, though they were unable to find any matches. The following day, on Monday the 11th of February, the GPS data showed that Alan had dropped off his kids uh, at the daycare at 7.54am, before travelling to a Albertsons parking lot, arriving at 8.10am. GPS data located his vehicle to have been on the northwest side of the parking lot, where two large dumpsters had been located, and it was theorised that this had been where Alan Alan may have disposed of various bloody items related to the murder of Susan. Alan left the parking lot at 8.20am, according to the GPS data, and continued on to work. The data confirmed that he had picked up the children right after he had finished work, and that they had gone to his apartment and didn't leave that evening. Now, CCTV footage showed that at 2.24am, on the route from Alan's apartment to Susan's home, which was about 1.7 miles each way, a cyclist was travelling, originating from the direction of Alan's apartment. The quality of the video footage was poor, and the investigators were only able to make out that there had been an individual on a bicycle in the images. Traffic cameras also located a cyclist eastbound of 240th Street, making a left-hand turn headed northbound onto the Bothell Everett Highway at 4.33am. That would have been the most direct route from Susan's home to Alan's apartment. The video footage from these traffic cameras was comparable to the earlier CCTV footage, poor quality. On the day that Susan's body was discovered, Tuesday the 12th of February, analysis of Alan's computers showed some interesting searches. The first search had been at 8.49am and had been an inquiry on kayak.com for flight information from Seattle to Venezuela for one adult and two children aged six and three, which was the same ages as his two children. A second search at 9.27am on Google had been, quote, where is the best place to live in South Central America? With a third subsequent search at 9.31am on Google for best countries to live and work abroad. These searches had been made prior to Alan being told by the detectives of Susan's murder. It was based on these searches for flights to Venezuela with one adult and two children aged six and three that the suggestion emerged Alan had been planning a trip to Venezuela for several weeks. Though his Google searches for the best places to live in South Central America and best countries to live and work abroad suggested that he might have had more permanent plans. And with the knowledge of the increasing acidic relationship between Alan and Susan, we can conclude that it would have been very unlikely that Susan would have agreed to allow the children to leave the country for so long. It was also interesting to note that when Alan made those searches on the morning of the 12th of February, it had been the last day that the children were in his care, his custody, before returning them to Susan. GPS data from Alan's car showed that he had left the Boeing plant where he worked at approximately 1.15pm. He then drove to the Everett Walmart, arriving at 1.21pm and leaving at 1.35pm. At the Walmart, he purchased a pair of Croc-style shoes, two pairs of Playtex gloves, and a gas can with cash. Alan paying with cash was considered to have been very unusual, as he typically only paid with his debit or credit card. After making these purchases, the GPS data showed that at 1.35pm, Alan drove to the location of a nearby Home Depot, arriving at 1.37. Financial records then showed that Alan purchased two clean guard coveralls at 1.40, 
before leaving again at 1.44. The GPS data then tracked Alan as he drove to Bothell, arriving at the intersection of 240th Street Southeast and Meridian Avenue South at 2pm. This intersection was located several blocks away from Susan's home, and at the time that he had arrived at the intersection, the police had been manning a barricade that didn't allow any travel further west due to the discovery of Susan's body. It's unclear why Alan had driven to the area of Susan's home, but we know that at that time he had in his car two packages of clean guard coveralls, a gas can, two pairs of latex gloves, and a pair of Croc-style shoes. And interestingly, Alan completely failed to tell the investigators in the subsequent interviews and questioning that he had gone to the Walmart or the area of Susan's home that day. The GPS data then showed that Alan drove back to work at the Boeing plants, arriving there at 2.47pm, which was about 15 minutes before the detectives arrived. As we know, at 10.23pm that day, Alan sent a text message to Susan's phone that simply said, Hi Susie. When the digital forensics team analysed the text message history and communications between Susan and Alan, they determined that on no other occasion does Alan refer to Susan as Susie. He specifically addresses her as Susan on the majority of the messages, never Susie or Susan with one N or using any other form. In the 14 months leading up to the murder, the pair exchanged a total of 127 messages with an average of nine messages per month, which is a considerably low volume of messages. All of the messages or exchanges between Alan and Susan during that 14-month time frame were conversations in which they discussed transferring the children back and forth or other issues related to the children or between them. In fact, in no other messages does Alan ever simply write, Hi. On Wednesday the 13th of February, on the day after Susan's body was discovered and on the day of the autopsy, the GPS data indicated that Alan had left his home at 4.25am and headed south on the I-405, exiting the I-405 in Bellevue at the Northeast 8th Street exit, making a U-turn and getting back on the I-405. Alan then continued back north on the I-405, ultimately ending his journey at his workplace at the Boeing plant at 5.29am. Again, it's unclear why Alan drove to Renton in the early hours of the morning, though it was clear that the drive had been unprecedented based on the historical GPS data. At 5.53am, Alan performed another search for flights to South America, and at 6.06am, Alan searched on kayak.com for flight information for a flight from Seattle to Venezuela for only one adult. During the course of the workday, Alan made four separate cash withdrawals from an ATM at the Boeing plant, the total amount being $1,500. These movements and transactions were omitted from Alan's recounting of his activities in any of the interviews he had with the detectives. Now, on Friday the 1st of March 2013, a Bothell man contacted the police about a bicycle that he had noticed that had been left unattended for several days at business and apartment complexes around the Canyon Park neighbourhood which was where Alan lived. The police logs this abandoned bicycle into the Bothell Police Evidence Room that same day. The following week, on Friday the 8th of March 2013, Alan went to the Bothell Police Department to pick up the keys to his car, as his car had been seized as part of the search warrant. While he was there, the detectives asked him if they could question him further, to which he refused telling them that his attorney had advised him against further questioning. And as they had been unable to locate Alan's passport during the searches of his apartments, workplace and vehicles, they asked Alan where it was and reinstated that there was an authorization to seize his passport under the authority of a search warrant. Though Alan Smith declined to hand over his passport at that time. On the 12th and on the 28th of March 2013, and on the 10th of April 2013, four search warrants were signed that authorised the search of Alan's financial accounts, 
and cell phone. I included the data from the financial accounts in the timeline of events we just discussed. In early April of 2013, it was reported that Alan had spoken to one of the neighbours of the Smith house and told them that he had been planning on moving back into the Smith house. Alan had already changed the locks on the house and had Susan's vehicles removed from the premises. The police instructed the neighbours to not have any contact with him. On the 21st of April, Alan moved into Susan's home with his new girlfriend at the time, 32-year-old Love Ty. We'll touch on this new relationship shortly. The detectives also learnt on that day that Alan Smith and Love Ty had been considering, quote, getting out of the country and going to South America to avoid the police. On Wednesday, the 24th of April, 2013, a detective checked the serial numbers of the bicycle that had been taken into evidence and confirmed that it had been the same bicycle as the one that Alan had purchased in November of the previous year via these serial number records. The bicycle was subsequently photographed and packaged before being sent to be processed and analysed for latent prints, DNA, and other trace materials. On Friday the 14th of June 2013, the police tracked down a truck driver that had been seen in the CCTV footage of the bicycle travelling in the early morning hours of February 11th. The police asked the truck driver whether he had seen a cyclist, though it is important to note that this interview took place four months after the event had happened and Memory is a feeble thing. During this interview, the truck driver said that he remembered seeing a man on a bike one night in February. Though he couldn't give an exact date, he did state that it had been on a Monday. The truck driver explained that he'd only glanced at the man on the bike twice, but could describe him as wearing dark clothing with a grizzled or unkempt look. It's important to note that the truck driver failed to mention any specific article of clothing or any specific features of the cyclist. On the 18th of June 2013, Boeing sent Alan Smith a notice that stated that he had been put on leave without pay after being on paid leave since the end of February. And in the evening of Wednesday the 19th of June 2013, neighbours to the Smith house, which was where Alan had now been living, phoned for the police after they heard a woman screaming. When the police arrived, they found Alan and his new girlfriend, Love Ty, having sex in the backyard. No charges were filed against them, but the neighbours also complained about nude sunbathing, which Love Ty claims would have been very hard for them to see. Love Ty also alleged that they had found threatening notes left on the property, but she didn't know who had put them there. On either Saturday the 22nd or Sunday the 23rd of June 2013, Alan and Love Ty were told that due to the ongoing publicity surrounding the investigation to Susan's murder, they were no longer welcome to attend services at City Church's Seattle or Kirkland Church campus. And being turned away from the City Church deeply upset both Alan and Love Ty. We know, though, that on Sunday the 23rd of June 2013, Alan and Love Ty phoned up Wendell Morris, who Alan had met at a potluck organised by City Church. Wendell Morris had been an ordained minister, though it is important to establish that he had not been employed by City Church. Alan Smith and Love Ty asked Wendell Morris over the phone whether they could meet up at a Starbucks on South Lake Union, to which Wendell Morris agreed. When Wendell arrived at the Starbucks with his wife and went inside, Love Ty approached him and told him that Alan Smith was outside in his car and that he needed support. Wendell Morris then promptly went to Alan's car to find Alan upset. While Love Ty and Wendell Morris's wife spoke inside of the Starbucks, Wendell Morris and Alan spoke inside of Alan's car. Alan appeared distraught to Wendell, as he stated that his life was in, quote, chaos, and that he felt, quote, trapped by tornadoes all around him, and that he was in over his head dealing with the mental issues of Love Ty. Wendell told Alan that he had come to point Alan to the Lord and to the Word of God. Though, Wendell explained that before he could help and support him, he needed to know whether he had anything to do with his wife's murder. 
Alan didn't respond to this question immediately, taking a moment before suggesting that they take a walk. According to Wendell, Alan appeared to look around and express concern as to how, quote, safe the area was. And Wendell then told Alan that whatever he said would stay between the two of them. As Alan and Wendell were walking, Alan turned to Wendell and stated, about what you asked me in the car, the answer is yes. Wendell took a moment before asking him to clarify. Alan told him, yes, I did it to her. It was at that point that Alan broke down sobbing and crying before telling Wendell, I respect what you do with the information because at this point I am walking off the ledge. I'm walking off the ledge. Wendell Morris would later explain that it had been his belief that Alan was going to turn himself into the police and that Alan's comment had meant that he had Alan's permission to take his statements to the authorities. The pair continued their conversation and at some point Alan Smith indicated that he would like to be baptised. Wendell Morris decided that they could go that day to get Alan baptised to the Citadel Church in Des Moines as it had been open late, though when they arrived they discovered the church didn't have a baptistry. The pair eventually parted ways and over the next few days Wendell Morris contacted Alan via phone and text messages and tried to persuade him to speak with the authorities. By the time Tuesday the 27th of June 2013 came around, and after Alan had still failed to come forward with his confession to the authorities, Wendell Morris called the police. When he spoke with the authorities, he was adamant that he had not been acting as a clergyman when he spoke with Alan Smith, but merely as a man of God. It was on that same day, Tuesday the 27th of June, that results of the analysis of the bloody footprints, bloodstain impressions, and other forensic comparisons were completed. The forensic scientist Steve Stone concluded that the impressions in blood that were found on the bathtub were consistent with the coveralls type of suits that the police had learned Alan Smith had purchased in October of 2012 and on February 12th. 12th, 2013. Further, Steve Stone found that Crocstyle shoes, the same kinds that Alan Smith had purchased, were consistent with leaving some of the prints found at the scene. The police actually in their investigation purchased an identical pair of shoes and asked their crime lab to compare the soles of the shoes to the impressions left in the blood at the scene, and the forensic scientist concluded that, quote, the shoes can be included in the possible designs that correspond to this impression. Notably though, the Crocstyle shoes that Alan Smith had purchased had not been recovered by the police during any of their searches. Sergeant Shelley Massey found, after examining photos of the bloody footprints and comparing them to known impressions of Alan Smith's feet, that there was support for the hypothesis that Alan Smith had left the bloody footprints. It was also determined by Dr. Stanley Adams, the pathologist, that the type of mallet that Alan Smith had purchased in October of 2012 would match both the wound patterns documented photographically and the nature of the blunt force injuries sustained by Susan. Another forensic scientist called Kathy Giel also examined the photographs of the injuries and the mallet and indicated that the mallet was consistent with the wound patterns documented. Kathy Gale also noted that from looking at the photographs of Susan's body that the sole intent of her assailant had been to kill her. Also on that Tuesday, the 25th of June, charges were filed against Alan Smith for obstructing, and that was for refusing to turn over his passport as directed by court order. Alan Smith posted a $10,000 bond for the obstruction charges the following day on the 26th of June. Though, on the 27th of June, at approximately 8am, multiple members of the Bothell Police went to Alan Smith's home to arrest him for the murder of Susan Smith. Two detectives knocked on Alan Smith's door, and when he answered, they told him that they had spoken to Wendell Morris, 
and that it was time to finish what he and Wendell Morris had started. During this contact, Alan Smith opted to not talk with the detectives. He was advised that he was under arrest for murder and was handcuffed. Alan was then transported to the Bottle Police Department, where he was read his Miranda warnings at 9.15am and no further questioning took place. Alan Smith was charged with first-degree murder with a deadly weapon, with the aggravating factor of domestic violence, was held in custody on a bail of $1 million. The press published these charges and details about the arrest the following day. On the 7th of July 2013, Alan's girlfriend Love Ty posted to Facebook and told the newspaper the report that she was pregnant with Alan's child, posting pictures of the ultrasound scans. Alan Smith then appeared in court for the misdemeanor charge of obstruction on Monday the 23rd of September 2013, and notably, his girlfriend Love Ty had been present to defend him. Now, there were numerous pretrial hearings that took place from September 2013 through to April 2014, which I'll pop the dates and details on screen now for the sake of brevity. And tragically, on the 9th of April 2014, Love Ty was found deceased after taking her own life. The Kings County Medical Examiner's Office noted the marks around her neck, though they could not confirm if Love Tight had still been pregnant at the time of her death, which is a bit bizarre to me, but that's outside the scope of this coverage. Following the death of Love Tight, the trial date which had originally been set for the 2nd of May 2014 was moved to the 13th of June 2014, which was then moved again to the 12th of January 2015. The trial against Alan Smith commenced on Monday the 12th of January 2015, and Alan Smith waived his right to a jury trial, which meant the verdict in his case would be rendered by the trial court itself. The trial came to a close on the 4th of February 2015, almost two years to the day of the murder. The trial court gave its oral decision, which included its findings of fact and conclusions of law. Let's take a look at the oral decision, and this is all almost verbatim taken from that. The trial court noted in its findings that there was substantial circumstantial evidence suggesting Alan Smith's involvement in the crime. In particular, the court found that at the time of Susan Smith's death, Alan Smith and Susan Smith were in the midst of conscientious dissolution proceedings with Alan Smith obsessed with the dissolution and Alan Smith frequently expressing his frustrations about the dissolution proceedings to co-workers and family members. Alan Smith also expressed concern that Susan Smith would take their two children back to her native Germany. The trial court found that in the fall of 2012, Alan Smith made statements to a woman he was involved with that he would like Susan Smith to disappear, and Alan Smith asked the woman if she knew of any way to, quote, get rid of someone. At around that same time, Alan Smith purchased a rubber mallet and disposable coveralls, items which were consistent with the murder weapon and fabric impressions found at the murder scene. The trial court found that forensic evidence obtained at the crime scene included a DNA match to Alan Smith on a washcloth located under Susan Smith's body in the bathtub, and blood footprints that could have been made by Alan Smith. The trial court noted in its oral findings that in the early morning hours of Monday the 11th of February 2013, a man was seen riding a bike on a route that could lead to Susan Smith's house, and a couple of hours later, the same man was seen riding a bike in the opposite direction on a route that could lead to Alan Smith's house. Evidence was also presented that a bicycle that Alan Smith had recently purchased was later found abandoned near Alan Smith's apartment complex. The trial court also found that the GPS evidence showed some suspicious and unusual travel by Alan on Monday the 11th of February 2013, 
and on Tuesday the 12th of February 2013. In particular on the day of Monday the 11th of February, Alan made an unexplained detour to the area of some dumpsters. On Tuesday the 12th of February, Alan Smith left work midday and made stops at the Walmart and Home Depot where he purchased disposable coveralls, masking tape, croc style shoes with soles consistent with bloody footprints found at the murder scene, latex gloves and a gas can before driving to the area of Susan Smith's residence which was at that time barricaded by the police. Additional suspicious activity noted by the trial court included various internet searches, including searches for the flights to Venezuela, and a modified search for flights for one adult after Alan Smith's children were placed with Child Protective Services. After detailing the circumstantial evidence suggesting Alan Smith's likely involvement in the crime, the trial court went on to explain that none of the evidence was sufficient to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that Alan Smith was guilty of the crime of murdering Susan Smith, but that the evidence must be considered in light of Alan Smith's interactions with Wendell Morris to whom Alan Smith confessed. The trial court concluded that Alan Smith's confession to Wendell Morris, in combination with the other evidence presented at trial, established beyond a reasonable doubt that Alan Smith was responsible for the murder of Susan Smith. The court convicted Alan Smith of murder in the first degree after hearing the better part of three weeks testimony prior to reaching this verdict. The sentencing hearing was set for Monday the 23rd of February 2015 at 1.30pm. Prior to the sentencing hearing taking place, the state filed their sentencing memorandum which essentially argued for how long he should be sentenced for. You see, due to murder in the first degree being a level XV or 15 offence, and the fact that Alan had no prior criminal history, he was eligible for a sentencing range from 240 months or 20 years to 320 months or just over 26 and a half years. Though, because Alan had been armed with a deadly weapon at the time of the offence, an additional 24 months or two years would be added to the top and bottom of the sentencing range, so 22 years to 28 and a half years. On top of that, due to the fact that the crime had been to do with domestic violence, an additional 36 months of community custody was added. It had been the state's recommendation that Allen be sentenced to the higher end of the range for 344 months or 28 and a half years. When looking at the facts of this case, it is hard to imagine a more calculated, arrogant and selfish act of violence and that the murder of Susan Smith had been no heat-of-the-moment event. You see, Alan selected a time when Susan Smith would be the least likely to be able to defend herself, and when it would have been least likely that anyone could witness any part of the crime and try to prevent it. Alan took multiple steps in an effort to decrease the chances that he would leave any forensic evidence for the authorities to find. He even used his own children as props in his story to the police, holding them as proof that he did not venture out into the night and, quote, kill the mother of his children. His arrogance completely manifested itself in his belief that he was smarter than anyone else, and that if he had just planned his attack on Susan Smith well enough, then he would be able to get away with murder. And looking at all the evidence in this case, Alan approached this vicious and brutal attack just like he would have done any other problem at his work. That is, with enough thought and engineering, anything could be managed. This was exemplified by the way in which Alan planned the attack, and the way in which he carried himself in the days immediately following the discovery of Susan Smith's body. He genuinely believed that he had thought of everything, using the cover of darkness to hide him as he cycled over to Susan's house, wearing protective gear, disposing of the gloves and crocs and coveralls used in the attack, and fabricating a story that he wholeheartedly believed could not be disproved. All of this effort, all of this planning, 
all of this engineering of a murder just for Alan's downfall to be the various items he failed to account for and his own breakdown and unraveling when his life after the murder did not turn out the way he had planned and hoped. The degree to which Alan's selfishness will impact the lives of Susan's family, her parents, her sister and their two young children is impossible to overstate. His attempts to prevent his children from going with their mother to Germany saw Alan go to great lengths to defame a woman whom all evidence indicates devoted her life to her children and to the church. All of this because he feared that the children might be moved to Germany at some point. After all of this planning, after all of this violence, Alan has essentially orphaned his two young children in a final act of complete selfishness. The revolting and grotesque manner in which Alan had treated Susan during both the attack and afterwards by leaving her in a state that I couldn't bear to describe in this video speaks volumes as to the lack of care and thought he had for anyone else but himself. The horrific nightmarish scene that he had left in blood at the home where his children lived amplified Alan's selfish thought process thinking of no one but him. I simply cannot overstate and exaggerate the cold-blooded viciousness of the attack on Susan, the location of her injuries, the vast number of injuries she suffered, the use of two different weapons, and the fact that he placed her in the bathtub once she had been rendered completely helpless demonstrates his lack of care for anyone but himself, his single-mindedness. The pain and horror that Susan Smith likely suffered in her final moments is disturbing to contemplate. The state requested that the court impose the high end of the 344 months and that the court impose 36 months of community custody after Alan Smith's release and impose the standard financial conditions. The state also requested that the court order Alan Smith to have no contact with Susan Smith's family and have no contact with either of their two children until they reach the age of 18. The sentencing hearing against Alan Smith took place on Thursday the 5th of March 2015. And taking the state's memorandum into consideration, Alan Smith was sentenced to the high-end sentence of 344 months imprisonment and a further 36 months community custody on one count of first-degree murder with a deadly weapon relating to domestic violence. Now, Alan filed notice of his appeal of the sentence on the 9th of March 2015, and in his appeal declaration, Alan Smith wrote that the court erred in nine different motions, notably that the court erred in denying the motion to suppress Wendell Morris's testimony due to the priest-penitent privilege. He also claimed that his attorneys provided ineffective assistance of counsel by failing to prevent evidence, failing to cross-examine the state's witnesses properly, failing to call necessary defense witnesses to establish crucial facts, failing to submit or request materials for sentencing, and by failing to communicate with him adequately through the course of the case. On the 13th of June 2016, Alan Smith filed a pro se petition for writ of habeas corpus in the Washington Supreme Court to challenge his commitments or criminal conviction to another facility or the conditions under which he was being held. On the 9th of January 2017, the Court of Appeals for the State of Washington issued an unpublished opinion that affirmed Alan Smith's conviction following his appeal, effectively striking down each and every ground he had appealed on. And on the 2nd of August 2017, his pro petition for review that he had filed with the Supreme Court for writ of habeas corpus was denied for review without comment. Finally, on the 11th of August 2018, the Washington Court of Appeals issued its mandate, which terminated direct review. Alan Smith was locked behind bars until the end of his sentence. We can only hope that Susan's family, her children and her friends have been able to find justice in the sentencing brought against Alan Smith 
and that they are able to move forward with their loving memories of her in their hearts. And that's everything that I have for you in this case. But just before you go, I just want to let you know that from this case forward, I will be publishing my entire research project alongside the fully cited script with all the case files and imagery I come across when I delve into a case. This is not only in an act of wanting complete transparency with you, but also due to the fact that I cover a lot of lesser known cases that deserve the attention. If you're a true crime content creator, you are more than welcome to use my research as a basis for your own coverage, as long as you leave a link to the research and give credit. Let's work together to amplify victims' stories and get them the public attention they deserve. I don't see any point or need to gatekeep the research that I spend the vast amount of my time on, especially as a lot of case files and sources are paywalled. You can find my true crime research repo at www.truecrimecases.com. You'll also be able to find a direct link to a specific case in the description box underneath my video on that case. Again, this is just for my cases going forward and I've not quite perfected the website as of yet, so I'll be trying to update it when I can. You can also leave uh, comments on my research. So if you find any additional information, you can add it there too. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.